morning, St. Clair. I'm going to do for us our scripture reading. Uh, You're welcome to follow along. We find ourselves this morning in Luke chapter 3, starting at verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Lutiria, and Trachonitis and Lucinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in and every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight and the rough ways smooth and all mankind will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children of Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What shall we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, The man who with two tunics should share with him who has none. And the one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. John answered them all, I baptize you with water. But one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John extorted the people and preached the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. This is the word of the Lord. And Merry Christmas. That probably isn't where you thought we would go this morning, given that this is now the second week of Advent. And traditionally, we would find ourselves reading through some gospel take of the birth narrative of Jesus. But you may have noticed, hold on, wait a second, that passage is not talking about 
happy little baby Jesus being born into a sweet, quiet world. No, that is a very turbulent passage. I have yet to see, we actually have a little nativity scene here. I've yet to see a nativity scene or a holiday card or really any Christmas depiction of a brood of vipers or people fleeing a coming wrath or anything that this passage is talking about. So why, of all the things that we could talk about, do we find ourselves in Luke 3? Well, we're actually not just this week, but all the weeks, the next three weeks between now and Christmas, we're going to sort of camp out in this little passage, this one chapter of Scripture, because it is telling us something very important about the coming, the arrival of Jesus. And it is a passage, if you read the Gospel of Luke, it is very much intertwined into the narrative of Jesus coming. And then when we talk about Jesus coming, and as we read Scripture, you don't get Jesus without John the Baptist. John, Johnny Boy Baptist, as, uh, as some of us have come to know him. <laughs> like, oh, no, that doesn't even work. This is Joseph, but, you know, you could pretend that's <laughs> Johnny Boy. <laughs> I have been told by a number of parents that the more animated I am, you know, preaching, your kids at home, especially your young ones, just light up and react. So I'm trying to do my part to uh, engage the next generation. <laughs> so there is so much to talk about in this passage that we're just going to look at one aspect of it today for us. And we're going to start with the opening these words that Luke's, Luke offers us. Um, as Matt highlighted, I think, really, in a really helpful way in that call to worship, Advent is a time, it's a season, it's a moment where we learn to wait. It's a season that's marked with anticipation, where we learn to wait patiently for what matters most. Where we re-examine and we actually you know, take time to look honestly at the things that we have been waiting for and whether we need to keep waiting or whether they've even been worth the wait. And is it maybe safe to say that we're just generally not very good at waiting? That uh, I would say in maybe the most general sense, we're actually very impatient people, that we know more about impatience than we do patience. I, it seems nearly impossible to me these days to observe a line in any storefront or sort of public place that you go by. I mean, just given our current reality, you often see a line outside or in the store. And I'm actually always a little shocked or surprised when I see someone who's not in line with their face buried in their phone as a form of busyness or distraction. And, and just to see someone who's in line and they're just content in the moment, it would seem, to not be busy with something. It's, it's a crazy notion that that is the exception, that that maybe feels like an anomaly in our day today. And you think perhaps with COVID, you know, that it would have taught us something, maybe about what it is to be patient people, because we've been forced in such a huge situation where we have so little control. And so, of course, we would learn what it is to relinquish control and how to be patient and wait. Yet, somehow, we, we very quickly found a way to how to strategize our way out of impatience. And, I mean, 
you order something on Amazon and you're, you're shocked and appalled when it comes in three days and not in two days, or you're, maybe just me, but you're watching, tracking the package online and you're like, this thing should have come an hour ago. Why is it stuck in some depot in Mississauga? Like our impatience is so high. And like, this is kind of what's become normative for us is that we just instant gratification all the time. And so to be in a season now, like an entire sort of moment in the year that in the church calendar sense is asking and teaching us how to wait, I think that's a very difficult task. And perhaps without even noticing it, most of our life actually I think is spent waiting. And then we're always looking for the next thing, never really finding ourselves in the moment. I read this from Ronald Rollheiser. I thought it was, it was a very accurate description. He says, we spend about 98% of our lives waiting for something else to happen to us. Sometimes we're just waiting for our bus to arrive, for a work day to end, or for a cherished friend to visit. But at other times, our impatience is deeper, and we ache for a new season in our lives, a new person to fall in love with, a more meaningful career, or the courage to finally face up to a nagging problem. We're always waiting. In that sense, we're always in Advent. We long for someone or something to come along and bring new meaning into our lives. For us as Christians, Rollheiser says, we see, we see that new meaning is in the coming of Christ. The season of Advent is a time to get in touch with our longing, our aching, and our frustrations. Now, that's an incredible invitation, but that is no easy task to say yes to paying attention to the things that trouble us. That's the invitation that we have in Advent. And I think it's why Advent is such a necessary season to go through, one that we cannot afford to skip or let it pass by. It's no wonder that we have so much frenetic activity at Christmas, so much planning, so much shopping, so many social commitments, so many rituals and routines at Christmas particularly that keeps us busy and so often we just come out the other side wiped out. What exists to teach us patience often becomes the busiest and most impatient time of year. And so I I think there's something revealing that happens in Advent. We've become experts at avoiding or ignoring our longing, our aching, our frustrations. And there's no time quite like Christmas that shows us how good we've gotten at that. And But maybe, maybe not this year. Maybe with our hands being forced into a different way, it actually becomes a chance for us to come into Advent and to Christmas with a different expectation and a different way of learning how to wait. John Ortberg, uh, I thought, crystallized this in such a helpful way, talking about the importance of waiting. He says, who you become while you're waiting is as important as what you're waiting for. Who you become while you're waiting is as important as what you're waiting for. 
And so I th- it's fitting that we talk about John the Baptist because his role in the coming of Jesus, the long anticipation of the Messiah, is that there's this inseparableness between John and Jesus in the gospel of accounts. And so we don't get to Jesus without going through John first. And he has something to teach us in what it is to wait. So here we are, the opening words of Luke 3. In the 15th year of the, in the, of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor over Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Luteria, and Trachonitis, I don't know why I'm reading this twice and putting myself through pronouncing these again. (laughs) So you can just read along at home. (laughs) The first couple verses of Luke 3. This is not just, I gave up on that, not just a a sort of historical account for the sake of giving historical credibility to Luke's writing. No, Luke is actually telling us something. He's painting the picture of what is going on and what the backdrop is to John and Jesus in this moment. It names, all these names represent something for us. And really, it actually represents that there's a terrible darkness over the land. Herod, Philip, Trachonitis, and Licinius, they were all sons of King Herod. King Herod is the one who, when he heard about the birth of Jesus through the wise men that came to visit because they heard about uh, the Messiah had come and came to visit, King Herod is the one who, when he realized he'd been tricked by the wise men who came to visit, then sent out a decree that all Jewish boys in Bethlehem, the surrounding era, area, be killed who are two years and younger. This is King Herod, like... A Jew himself who's killing his own people in order to preserve his own power. He dies and now he's entrusted these regions to his four sons. And then you see Pilate, Annas, and Caiaphas, and Herod. So one of Herod the great sons. All these names, you might recognize them if you play it forward in the gospel accounts. Because all these people are names and players in the death of Jesus. They all sign off on Jesus's crucifixion. And if it's not even enough, Pilate, who represents Rome and the uh, Roman authority in the area, it says in John's gospel that Pilate and Herod actually became friends because they united over crucifying Jesus together. That became common ground for them. And you have this really bad marriage of Roman rule state, and religious authority, Herod, merging together. And so you you have Jesus and John the Baptist who are coming into a spiritual, religious, political climate that is dark, that is not as it should be, that it is not good. The way is not smooth for John and for Jesus to enter in. As one commentator notes, of all, as these names are representing something, each authority represents corruption, greed, and irresponsible wielding of power, which perhaps can resonate for us today. And if that wasn't enough, being under the reign of Tiberius Caesar, under Roman rule, was a really harsh reminder to Israel, to God's people, 
that they were not living as free people. That rather than feeling triumphant, they actually felt trampled upon. They felt suppressed. They were oppressed people. And one commentator describes this moment where John the Baptist is entering the scene. He says, Into a world dominated by fear, injustice, and corrupt power steps the Prince of Peace and the light of the world. That John and Jesus come announcing a good news in this dark political moment. And Israel was due for some good news. At this point, they had not had a prophet like John the Baptist or any prophet for 400 years. They had no one being a representative to them before God or God to them. There was this longing, this ache to hear from God and to know that he was with them. And so that's why we see in Luke 3 and 15, it describes for us this scene where it says, the people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. They heard something in the hope that John was declaring that they were ready and waiting. And so as we hear John's words, What does that mean for us? What does it mean for us as we wait and we hope? It begs the question, well, what are we hoping for? You see what the Israelites are hoping for. The crowds are running out out of the city into the wilderness at the chance that they might hear from God to know that they're not forgotten, that he is coming to be with them. And so at Advent, what... What is it that we are hoping for? Is the thing that we are hoping for, is it worth waiting for? Do we even know what we're hoping for? Do we even have enough in the tank to keep hoping? Or has despair taken over these days? If we could ask God for one thing, what might it be? Is our hope, our expectation, any bigger than ourselves? Are we just wishing for circumstance to change so we can get back to living the life that we want? Or does hope, the thing worth waiting for this year, move us in any way to loving God and loving others more? So I'm, I'm asking us to sit with that question. What are you hoping for this Christmas? Maybe two things to hear as you consider what is worth waiting for. Luke speaks to us from the prophet Isaiah, telling us that it is being long planned, that this moment was being made ready, that God has promised to be Emmanuel, come with us the Emmanuel God with us. And we're told that through Isaiah in this Luke 3 passage. For those of you that have felt the pain, the anguish, the despair, the weariness of this year, and you really aren't sure if you want to risk again of asking, hoping, or waiting, hear these words 
from Isaiah as well that are also prophesying about what Jesus is like, what it means for God to come near. This is Isaiah 42. Speaking of Jesus, it says, Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged. God's promise to us, in as we dare to wait and hope and ask yet again, is that he will be very tender and kind with us, especially in our weariness. That he promises to be one on our behalf who will not grow tired and weary. And so we're given a strength that is not our own to trust and give permission again and let God show himself to be as good as he says he is. And then for those of us Perhaps you just are looking to just carry on and you've worked out maybe a little deal with God and you've kind of said, God, okay, I'm going to just do my thing. I'm going to be over here. I can't like put up with any more of, of this. And so if you need me, I'll be over here. You know, you know where to find me. I'll kind of do my thing. And then we just sort of half wait, half expectantly Think, well, if God's going to do something, he's going to show up. He'll make it spectacular. He'll do it in a dramatic way. God really kind of needs to get my attention if I'm really going to sort of like dare to trust him on all this. And yet, we see again through Isaiah, the promise of Jesus can be easily missed. Jesus offers himself in hidden, neglected, and often forgotten ways. This is the words of Isaiah 53, of this promise of Jesus. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. So what if this Advent, in our waiting, in our eager expectation, God would dare to show up to be Emmanuel, God with us, and he longs to do it in the non-sexy places of our life, but actually wants to meet us maybe even confront us in the ordinary places of our life or the lost or forgotten places or even the places that we don't want to go. Because we're told that Jesus knew that it was good for him to reveal himself in unexpected ways. That's the promise that we have of Jesus here. What if Jesus is waiting to be seen by you in the most unexpected place? Will we have eyes to see it? 
Will we be ready? Because we've been waiting for it. This account of John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus in Luke 3, it ties in with all the other Gospels. And there's this moment in John chapter 3 where John the Baptist has done his thing. He's got this baptism of repentance and the forgiveness of sins and then enters Jesus onto the scene. And John the Baptist's disciples, the people that were following him, kind of are feel like they're they're a bit confused because now they're seeing the prominence of Jesus rise and the people are hearing the good news that Jesus is declaring. And they're not sure, John, should we stick with you or should we go with Jesus? And John says with this great delight, describes it in John 3. He says, oh, my joy is being made complete. The moment is coming. I, as it was read for us by Matt, John the Baptist is not the light. Jesus is the light. He's just pointing us. He was the one preparing the way. And then he says this in John 3.30. He says, John the Baptist is speaking this of himself and of Jesus. He says, he must become greater. I must become less. He must become greater. I must become less. In the sense of he must become greater, some translations would read he must increase. It carries a sense of like he must develop. He must mature. He must grow. And that I must become less or I must decrease is a sense of kind of moving down in rank or in priority or in, in influence. And so John has this sort of beautiful declaration of saying, oh, Jesus, look, you get the spotlight. I'll go into the shadows. This is how it is meant to be. And I think this is a prayer that I have been leaning on now in Advent and this would be my invitation to us, is in how we learn to wait in this season, that maybe these words of you must increase, I must decrease. Maybe that's the posture that we need. The way that we learn to wait is this constant day in and day out, hour by hour, moment by moment, invitation, this response that postures us in this eager expectation to say, God, you've got to increase and I've got to decrease. And John's declaration of what is taking place is not just a personal, private salvation. It is a new way in which the world is to operate. And Walter Brueggemann says this. He offers it with a sort of, I think, like a prophetic charge that would, to me would have a, a tone of John the Baptist. And if you've been following along our Advent readings this week, and we're, there'll be a new set for our second weekend of Advent, um, Walter Brueggemann has kind of been a guide to reflect on uh, along the way. He says this about what it means to increase and decrease. He says, decrease what is old and habitual and destructive in your life so that the new life-giving power of Jesus may grow large with you. Decrease what is greedy, what is frantic consumerism for the increase of life-giving truth-telling in your life. Truth-telling about you and your neighbor, about the sickness of our society and our enmeshment in that sickness. Decrease what is hateful and alienating for the increase of healing and forgiveness, which finally are the only source of life. 
And so, St. Clair, my, my hope, my invitation for us as we learn to wait is to participate in this prayer. And maybe I'll, I'll offer for us um, the way that I do it. You can choose to follow or maybe you can do it your own way. But sort of at any given moment, when I realize my own rank or my own priority or my own influence or the influence of things around me needs to lessen, and I just have this simple ask of saying, God, you need to increase. And there's a sort of a, a mysterious movement that takes place. Most of the time, I'm not aware of it. I'm just asking for trusting that it is happening. But it can become a breath prayer that as you breathe in, you must increase. And as you breathe out, I must decrease. Super simple. I'm going to do it right now. You can do it with me if you like to practice it, to make it familiar, that it will carry with you in your days this week. You must increase. I must decrease. You must increase. I must decrease. Or you could say, you must become greater I must become less. You become greater. I become less. Or maybe even as you see the troubles of the world, you could join in this prayer and say, God, you must increase and we must decrease. You must increase and we need to decrease. God, would you teach us how to wait in these days? Amy is going to lead us in communion together this morning.